We are continuing our conversation in James. Uh, if you would open your Bibles there, if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand and I'll get one to you. So good to have you here this morning. Welcome to Genesis. Those of you who are here for the first time, we're glad that you're joining us. And as we've been continuing this conversation, last week we had a challenge. Watch what you say. Make sure that your words aren't talking about someone. How did you guys do last week? I know one person came up to me and said, they're destined for hell based on last week. (laughs) How did the rest of you do? Any of you do better than that? (laughs) We're trying to get our goals up here and not down there. We, We find that our religion, as James says, that isn't actually active is in vain. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. How what we believe needs to be shown and not just told. It's not a matter about what we say. It's not even a matter about what we believe. It's really a matter of how we live. And so I'm going to take the entire second chapter, even though we're going to focus mostly on the second part, because the theme is connected. This this thought that James is trying to push us into is prevalent throughout the entire book, but we're going to look at this entire chapter. So starting in James chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we know who he's talking to. He's talking to brothers and sisters, believers. Remember, he is talking specifically to the Jewish believers as he is dealing with them specifically. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so as James starts and writes in this portion here, he, he tells us that we are not to show favoritism. Now, 
once you hear that, there's probably something that comes to mind that maybe strikes you as like, well, what does that mean? Or does that mean this? I don't know where your mind's going, but my mind goes someplace. And usually where your mind goes to is where God is dealing you with or what God is dealing you with in that area. And so if you think of someone or some situation where you would react Maybe that's where you need to think. Maybe that's what you're supposed to focus on. But the idea of favoritism has more to do than with just how you treat people, or it has more to do with how you treat people than how you feel about people. In other words, he's not asking you to make everyone your BFF. You know, everyone's just my best friend forever. It's not like you have to always hang out with these people whoever these people are that you're being dealt with right now. The idea is, how do you act towards these people? What is your conduct with them? Do you shun them? Are you distant? And he gives an example about a person wearing, you know, gold rings and affluence comes in and then they're catering to them because, well, I can get something from these people. And the poor people, well, no, I don't have anything that I can get from you, so you sit over here. And and we probably think, I would never do something like that, ask someone to sit on the floor. Well, that's not in our society, but the idea here is if you look at some people as I can get something from these people, and so I will pay attention and treat them differently than the people who I know I can't get anything from, something's wrong. You're, You're violating the law of God that says you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus gave us that example, he asked, who is your neighbor? And he gave the story of the Good Samaritan, this person who was an outsider, this person who was not a part of the Jewish tradition and heritage, someone who was looked down upon and used him as showing kindness to a stranger, and it was because of what he did that it caused this response. He was the one who treated him like a neighbor. He was the one who actually fulfilled what the law required in Leviticus. And so James is pushing this Jewish community to think about how they treat people. Not how they feel about people, how they treat people. And when he goes on and he talks about the rich, aren't the rich exploiting you? He's not saying that all rich people are people who exploit you. He's talking about people who, again, treat people in a certain way. So don't take this and say, yes, the rich, and we're going to have you know, a revolution and we're going to you know, overthrow the rich people of the world. That, that's not what it's meant to imply At this time, and many times, those who have money have power, and those who have power wield it to their advantage. Are you catering to that? Or are you recognizing that God has told us we are to love one another and to love our neighbor as ourselves? And that includes those who are not esteemed in our sight. You see, every one of us makes judgments. When you see someone, you you make a judgment. We all do. You see someone wearing certain clothing and you think, oh, that person is like this. 
You see someone with their hair a certain way. Oh, that hairstyle is so 80s or whatever. We all make judgments based on just what we see. I make judgments with people based on who they remind me of. That reminds me of my old boss. I hated that guy. (laughs) And so now, hi, how are you doing? Fine. I remember you. And my mind goes to these places. We make judgments just based on the things that we see. And so what James is telling us to do, if you really keep the law, as he says in verse 8, then you can't show favoritism. Because if you break one aspect of the law, you're, you're breaking all of it. And see, what he's doing is challenging these Jewish believers who held just a lot of pride in the fact that they kept the law. And he says, I really don't care about you keeping all these things. If you're showing favoritism, it's all washed out. You are breaking the law of God. And he ends it so beautifully where he says in verse 12, speak and act. Oh, if we could do those things. If we could talk and act in a way that is edifying. If we could talk and behave in a way that is consistent. But if we would do those things, then we can find ourselves free of this judgment because Jesus put so much emphasis. And here's where we see James and Jesus being so similar in the things that they say. Where Jesus said, how you treat others is how God is going to deal with you. If you judge others, that's the judgment that God is going to deal with you. And James is saying the same thing in verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That should stop us. That should cause us to take breath. That should make us think, oh no, am I being merciful? And why is it that our tendency is to be judgmental? It's revealing. It's showing our heart and character. And he closes with this incredible statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that beautiful? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Last week, I gave you homework. I said, watch what you say. Be aware of your thoughts and see if you're talking about people. Be aware of who you talk about. Here's some more homework. When there's an opportunity for judgment, let mercy triumph. See what it does to you when you allow mercy to shape your outlook. When you allow mercy to be your posture instead of judgment. And so what James is doing here is he's challenging us how you speak. Control that. How you judge. Control that. How you speak and how you act. Be in control of those things. And don't talk bad. Don't be blaspheming people and putting them down. 
Control the things that come out of your mouth. Now, control how you behave to people. The way you think about them and what you do to them. And you see, he's pushing us into becoming people of character. A character that is very like Jesus. Very much like Jesus. And so he's pushing us into a place of character. And he's just begun to push. Because in verse 14... He's going to shove. And so let's read it. Let's get shoved together. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offended his son, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, I'm going to challenge something that maybe you have heard and believed, and it's always difficult to start believing differently if you've been taught something. You know, we have been taught throughout, many of us anyway, church, whenever you hear the word saved, you automatically go into this theological term, salvation. It's taking me away from the judgment of God that will condemn my soul. But every time the word saved is used here in James' letter, it's not used in that way. It's used in the way we would always use the word saved. He saved the game. You know, I I fell into the water, but they saved me. It has to do with actually rescuing from a situation. It's not dealing in a theological term. That theological term wasn't prevalent at his time. And so I want to get you to start thinking about this word saved as not having to do whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, but having to do with the actions that he's talking about right here at the time. That's why he says... If someone says to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? And then right from there he goes to an example. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. What's going to happen? They're going to die. That's what happens if you don't have food. 
I know it's not our problem usually. I have too much food. But if you don't have clothing and you don't have food, you will die. But if you take care of that person and provide them something, guess what? You save them. But if you tell them, hey, be warm. Oh, man, you, what's your story? Oh, you're hungry. You haven't eaten in a week? Oh, my heart's touched, bro. Oh, man, I'm moved. I, I tell you what, I'm going to go and, and I'm going to pray for you tomorrow. I really am, man. I, I'm, I just want you to know I'm moved by your story. It really touches me. In fact, I'm going to put it on our prayer chain. We're all going to pray for you. And you don't give him food. What good is it? What good is it? Can that faith save him? See, this is the perspective that James is talking about. And it's real important because we've gotten into this frame of thinking of, you know, there's head faith and then there's heart faith. Have any of you heard that? You know, you've got head faith, but it needs to be heart faith. And it's something that happens at, you know, youth events and youth retreats. You know, it's as if salvation or faith is some disease and you're hoping that your kids will catch it. And you send them to camp. And it's like, oh, I hope they catch faith. I hope they get it. And then you hear this term, well, you know, there's head faith and there's heart faith. And you think, what do I have? I really want heart faith. But I'm thinking about it. So is it my head faith? How do I get it to my heart? And oh, I'm going to really, you know, and you're like constipated faith. You know, it's like, how do I get head faith to heart faith? And I, I just have to do this. And you see, James is dealing with that. He's saying, do it. There's not head faith and heart faith. There's useless faith. And then there's faith that is useful. And so the kids go to camp and, and, you know, they're at a campfire and it's been a long weekend and they've been sleep deprived and food deprived and over exhausted. And so they're real pliable for you to talk to. And so you start talking to them and you want to have a commitment to God. Yes, and they stand up by the fire and it's touching and they start crying and they all run to the phone and they call their parents and they say, yes, I accepted Jesus. And you're like, yes, they caught it. They caught the disease of faith. And then they come home and then they get back involved with their friends and pretty soon it's like, oh, it didn't stick. They got back involved with the, the wrong things and the wrong people and they started going back to their old ways. Well, maybe we'll have another event where it, they can catch it again. And you see, James is talking about just this mentality. You don't just catch it. You have to live it. Because what is a faith that doesn't have deeds? It's dead. It's dead. Now, he's not saying, well, if you don't do good things, you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you don't show your faith in your deeds, it's useless. You see, a person doesn't become a better person just because they believe. You don't become a better husband just because you become a, quote, Christian. I said a prayer. I'm now a Christian. Or I stood up at the campfire and, and I said a prayer. And so now I'm better. 
And so a little warning for you girls out there. If you're looking for someone today, all I need to do is date a Christian. He's just got to be a Christian. No, he's got to be more than just, quote, a Christian. Who cares what he calls himself? Who cares how he lives? See, I know some Christian guys who are jerks. And I wouldn't want my daughter marrying them because they're jerks. But they call themselves Christian. And so just believing something doesn't make you a better husband, doesn't make you a better employee, doesn't make you a better person just believing something. It's taking a belief and putting it into your practice of life that changes the character. Otherwise, what good is it? What good is it if you call yourself a Christian but you live like a jerk? And we want to have solace and comfort in the fact that I am, quote, named a Christian, that I am going to church, that I am labeled as something. We want to find comfort with that because it's too much effort to live it out. Because it's very difficult to actually put into practice these things, to to not gossip, to not talk about people, to not be favoritism towards the people that we can get benefits from. It's very difficult for us to actually live it out, and so we'd rather just label ourselves and then live the life we want to live. And you see, that's what James is pushing us for. He's saying that, This doesn't work. And this person who's without food and needs food, he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, it's useless. It's not going to produce anything. There's no value in just believing the right things. And... We need to take this idea of Christian and stop making it a magic word. Because the intention of the word originally was someone who looks like Jesus, a little Jesus, a little Christ. And stop making it something that you just believe and so hocus pocus there, you're better. Faith in Christ is what brings us in connection with God, but faith in Christ that doesn't show any activity in this world that we're living in is the same as no faith at all. And we need to recognize that, that as long as a person is a Christian, then it should be seen in what they do not just in what they say they are. And it's amazing how, and maybe it's because of my position as a pastor, but most of the people I talk to that have problems, who are kind of messed up, are, quote, Christians. What's with that? Why are they messed up? Is it because they're Christian? No. It's because of what they do. 
You, you see, if you look back and you think to yourself, the biggest regrets you have in your life, is it because of things that you've believed or is it things that you have done? Right? I mean, how many here think, oh man, my biggest mistake was that I, I thought the Angels were a good baseball team? <laughs> Dodger fan here, what can I say? The, the biggest you know, problem I have in life is because I believed something. No, the, the biggest problems I have had is because I've done something. I've done something stupid. I've done something selfish. I've done something that caused problems in my life. It wasn't what I believed. It was what I've done. That's what shows what I really believe. And so James is pushing us to deal with these things. And he says, you know, you say you believe that there's one God. Remember, hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one. This was paramount in the Jewish tradition. You believe in one God? Good. The devils believe and they shudder. Now here's something else I've heard. There's demon faith. Anyone ever heard that? Demon faith is where your faith is, again, just head faith. You, you believe like the demons, but you know if you don't believe the right way, then you have demon faith. Maybe it's Pentecostal circles or something like that. <laughs> come out you know but this idea of this faith that is like and, and these you see what he's talking about here is this idea that you have to have a faith that is being lived out in the practical way otherwise you could say demons believe and they shudder that means they do something but your faith is doing nothing. And so what are you going to do with this faith? How are you going to live it out? And what's it going to look like as it's put into practice? You see, there are no sins, really, that Christians can't commit. You can commit the same sins that the people out in the world commit. And just calling yourself a Christian doesn't stop you from sinning. And so you need to recognize that what qualifies what you believe is what you do. It's not what, quote, brings salvation to your soul. It's what qualifies what you believe to make it useful. Otherwise, it's worth nothing. Otherwise, why are you taking pride in something that produces nothing? And that was his point to these Jewish believers. You take pride in your heritage. You take pride in all these things that you know, but it produces nothing. And we live at a time where we turn into we turn our faith, this belief in Christ into this spiritual hocus pocus. You say a prayer and therefore everything's better. Okay, that's all you needed to do was say this prayer and now we'll, you know, make sure it's not head faith and it's heart faith. Or, or this intellectual understanding. Your faith is all about what you know. And both these areas, he's just saying, no, it's really practical. It's really how you live. 
It's really meant to move you to a place. And he gives examples. He talks about Abraham. And you think of these Jewish believers thinking about Abraham. What, what did you like about Abraham? Oh, Abraham is such a, a, a symbol to us because of his faith and trust in God. Why? Because God told him, go. And I'll show you eventually where you're to go to. And, and Abraham believed God and he went and just followed God. So what did, why are you so admiring Abraham? Well, because of what he did. Or Rahab the harlot. She took in the spies and she believed the report that, yeah, your God is the God I want to serve. And so because of what she did, we respect her. You see, Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness, but we know his righteousness because of what he did. Rahab believed God. We know she did because of what she did. And so we need to move our faith to a place that shows up in what we do. As I've been involved in various service in Christian ministry, there are certain things that start to stand out when you talk to people, the people who are doing what you would consider well, who are living lives that show evidence of change that go from a place of being, you know, people who are using people or addicted to things or uh, abusive in areas to people who are generous and who are loving and caring. And there are similar things that take place. And it's not that these people, you know, who are doing well, well, they just believe. It's that these people who are doing well start doing other things that take this idea of belief and start putting feet on it. One of the number one things you see is they start getting involved and being part of a community where, where they go to a church and they start actually learning about the scripture. And the scripture now becomes a part of their life so their lives are shaped by the things that are written in Scripture. And, and those things now start to mold who they are because they're involved, they're going somewhere, they're doing something. Those people are also people who get connected and involved and usually are serving. I know that's what happened with me. I, I started hanging out, helping and doing things, and pretty soon it was part of my life and it started shaping the things that I did. And it's not just serving at a church, but just doing things that are good and healthy and beneficial to other people. And so there are things that we do that move us from this category of what James would say was dead to a place to being that of alive. And there are things more than just saying a prayer. It's actually living what you say you believe. So don't tell me about your faith. Show me. 
Don't tell me about what you believe. Live it. And then I will know it. And don't think, and this is the, this is the point that James is pushing us, shoving us into. Don't think because you call yourself, quote, Christian or Jewish in his time. Don't think because you call yourself this that you are living the way God has called you to live. You know how you're right with God by how you're living. It shows up. Again, we're not talking about judgment to hell. We're talking about believing in God and it being evident to people. That's his point. There's not a contradiction between he and Paul, James and Paul. There's talking about two different things. And it's being seen in these things. Many times we think that we can just pray ourselves out of what we behaved ourselves into. You've been acting away. You've been acting away. You've been acting away. It shows up in your life and you say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. But you keep acting away. You keep acting away. You keep acting away. And there's no change in your character. There's no change in your conscience because you keep behaving a certain way. And then you pray, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. But you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you wonder why there's no change it's because of what you're doing don't be deceived see that your behavior is shaping who you are now every now and then there's that person who says a prayer and it's like a lightning bolt and all of a sudden things change, you know, they got busted for, you know, 10 pounds of, you know, stuff in their, in the trunk of their car and they say a prayer and there is a problem with the evidence and it got lost or something happens, you know, there's, there's that one in a million, but you know what? In my experience, 99% of the time doesn't change just because you say a prayer. I'm not devaluing prayer. What I'm trying to do is help us see that it's really what we do. It's really how we live. That when you change how you live, you change your life. And we change how we live based on the, the truths that God has revealed to us and by learning about those truths and then by allowing them to be a part of our lives and to shape our conduct and, and by believing them. I, I know so many people who you know, used to party and get drunk all the time and just carouse and do all kinds of things. And they said, you know what, uh, this isn't right. I'm, I'm going to stop doing this. And then they start coming to places where they learn the scriptures and they start learning what's right. And pretty soon their lives shift. And all of a sudden you look at them now and they're not the same person they were back then. Why? Well, because their belief resulted in the things that they did and it changed who they are. 
And that's how God is working. It's not magic. God can change a heart. But how do I know a heart is changed unless I see what that heart does? How do you know your heart is changed? By what you do. Don't fool yourself. And this, oh no, I need to make another altar call. No, you don't. You just need to start doing this. God loves you the same. You just need to change what you're doing. Oh no, it didn't take. I didn't catch the disease. Maybe if I make another altar call, there's harvest tonight at 6. I can go down on the field again. And now it'll take, this time I really, really mean it. There, I believe. Oh no, is it head faith? Is it demon faith? Maybe the problem isn't really what you're believing. Maybe it's what you're doing. And God loves you the same. And God is going to be merciful to you just the same. But maybe what needs to change is actually what you do. And we stop thinking that I can just say a prayer, hocus pocus, I'm all better, different now. Or I can learn all this information and now I know it. If these things don't change what we do, then it's no good to the world around you and it's no good to you. It's no good to you. And it's amazing how once we start living the way we should, we start enjoying life like we should. My wife and I, as we've been married for a number of years now, remember. <laughs> I think 29, I believe. The, the difficult times that we have when we argue and, and when there is tension between us, to get rid of the tension and the, the difficulty that we're going through, it, it usually doesn't go away if I just ignore it. She makes sure that it doesn't go away if I just ignore it. And it usually doesn't go away if we harp on it. And we can do that. It usually goes away when we start treating each other differently. It usually goes away when I start being nice to her like I should and start talking to her the way I should. Notice I'm just saying me doing these things. I'm trying to stay out of trouble here. <laughs> it usually changes when I behave and do things in a way that causes the change. When she's mad at me for no good reason, <laughs> and... There's tension between us. If I just sit there and say, okay, I'm going to wait for you to stop being mad for no good reason. I'd be sitting a long time. But once I go up to her and say, hon, I love you. And I hug her. 
And she gives me this. Mm. And I don't take the, mm. I still hug her anyway. And I still show love towards her anyway. All of a sudden then, we start to be able to communicate in the things that matter because we're not distant. How, why aren't we distant anymore? Because we are acting like we want to. We are acting in a way that is conducive with a better relationship. So many times in marital conversations when we're talking about someone, well, I can't do this because he's done this and I can't do this because she's done that. And you're just waiting. One of you needs to step up and act the way you're supposed to. I don't feel like it. I really don't care. No, really, I don't. You need to act the way you're supposed to. But I don't feel it. Then I I feel like such a hypocrite. You already are a hypocrite. Do you want me to point out the ways or can you see it? Why don't you do what you're supposed to do and find out that if the way you're supposed to live doesn't follow what you do instead of the other way around. Well, I don't love her anymore. Start acting like you love her and see if love isn't more what we do, a verb rather than just a word. Put it into practice. It was about how I feel. Gosh, flip a coin today. It was a good day. Got five hours sleep. We're good. Tomorrow might not be a good day. How I feel. What we do matters. Your faith is seen by what you do. Don't deceive yourself. Don't think you have something If it's not showing up, don't be satisfied with less. Push into what's more. That way we have that understanding of who God is and he shows up in our lives. Don't think that you're going to pray yourself out of what you behaved yourself into. You need to behave yourself out of it. You got yourself in it by doing things. You can get yourself out of it by doing things. That's good news. It's now in your power. All right, let's stand. We're going to have a great time because we all know now that we can change our world by what we do, right? High fives. Or are you afraid that really the responsibility of your life now rests in your hands and God is calling us on how we act? James has just shoved us into reality and said, get out there and do it. Let's stand together and pray. God, it's so hard to receive correction. It's so awkward. It's so uncomfortable to recognize that we have responsibilities when we're always trying to skirt them. Help us to realize that these responsibilities are actually freedom. Freedom to be able to to live and move in a direction that is good, that produces life, that changes who we are. And so, Lord, I pray right now that your words that we have heard will 
provoke us to not be lazy, to not settle for less, to not say that we believe but not show up, to not worry about, well, am I saved or am I not saved? I need to pray again. I I need to, to make another commitment to you. Lord, if we've made a commitment to you, may we make a step towards you. May our commitment now be engaged with how we live. May we bring this character into a place of growth and fruition. May we mature in the things that we do and how we live, how we see others and how we live out what we believe. May we change the world around us because we truly have been changed and it can be seen by what we do. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Bless the day, we pray, in your son Jesus' name. Amen.